Tonight on This is Vinyl Tap, Swimming with Bricks, bringing out the charge of the Love Brigade, finding someone to love, and visiting the sins of the white man again. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Hello, Tapsters, and welcome to another episode of This is Final Tap, the podcast where all the podcasts go to 11. We are unfortunately remote tonight, if you can't tell. Uh, Once again... Hi, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, uh, is in his home away from home, uh, Estes Park, Colorado. But joining Are me Are we referring all- to ourselves in third person now, Tony? I think uh, Tony says yes. <laughs> <laughs> joining me, as always, is our host, Doug Cooper, who I believe is broadcasting from the home of This Is Vinyl Tap, the Vinegaroon Saloon. Deep in the heart of Texas. Tell you what. Never turned my back to Lone Star State. <laughs> of course, you're probably in a part that used to be part of Texas. Uh, no, actually, I'm not. I'm, <laughs> to, to, I'm, I'm part of Indian country, which we'll get to later tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our coast, co- I'm sorry, coast. And our, our coast and our co-host, Tony Slagle, perhaps joining us from his grandfather's bass boat. But no, it doesn't look like it looks it doesn't even look like he's coming from his closet. No, I am in the bedroom. My uh, my wife and children are off celebrating an early Mother's Day. And I am uh, deep in the heart of South Austin, which is really the heart of Texas. It's it's a good place. If you have if you don't have a choice, that's a great place to be. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, if you can't tell tonight, I'm handling the hosting duties because I'm probably the person who's the least familiar with uh, the album we're looking at tonight which is Queen's A Day at the Races, an album that's pretty appropriate for uh, this weekend. Oh, I didn't even uh, think about that. And how it, yeah, it is uh, Kentucky Derby weekend, um, although I really don't think there's a song about horses racing on this album. But anyway, as most of our listeners know, we take turns recommending albums for this podcast. And this episode... We're looking at an, a, a pick by our co-host, Tony. So I'm going to begin the show uh, the same way we usually do, asking the person to pick the album, why you think this is an album worthy of uh, our listeners having it in their collection. 
You ever noticed that was Doug? an elegant sentence? Yeah. You ever noticed you ever noticed Doug with JM's host? He he doesn't ask why'd you pick it. It's why is this worthy of why yes. therefore this can <laughs> um, collection of yours become part of <clears throat> well uh that 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 took me a little bit by surprise, JM. I wasn't expecting you to ask, ask that question, so I'm sorry. Give me a minute to compose myself. It um, should be the same answer regardless, right? <laughs> Uh, because how about that? Um, no, I look, um, so a day at the races is an album that most casual queen listeners or fans may not be familiar with. It's the album that came after a night at the opera, their epic, uh, quote unquote masterpiece. Um, but I, I like it better than that album. Again, I don't know how much of that is because I heard that album so much and I was so familiar with it that when I heard this, I, I just was drawn to it. But I think the reason I like A Day at the Race is better is while they're very uh, similar albums, same sort of album cover, A Day at the Races is black with the Queen Crest, Night at the Opera is white with the Queen Crest. They have a couple of long epic songs. The vocal acrobats on this album, and this is funny to say, are a bit toned down compared to a night at the opera. And I think that lends itself to these songs being just slightly more repeatable in listening. Um, and I think it showcases the band a little bit more cause they're not, they're not drowned in all those, you know, overdub vocals. Um, and I just think overall, the album's a tighter album. And Day at the Races has great songs on it, but it's got a couple little short little ditties, and then it's got the instrumental of, uh, you know, God Save the Queen on it. Um, this just feels like a more complete album. I know that's blasphemy because so many people love love A Night at the Opera, but this has always been one of my favorite Queen albums. Uh, at one point, it was my favorite. I think it. I think it's surpassed, been surpassed by Sheer Heart Attack, but this album's a little bit more interesting to talk about because of what, what came before it and, and what, and why, you know, them working on this afterwards and what kind of what happened towards that. So that uh, roundabout way of me telling you why I picked it. How about that? My affinity for queen could uh, usually be described as a mild interest because I, I'm always interested in what they were doing. I mean, it, it did seem like they're, technical abilities are are really unbelievable. I mean, it's not just their studio acumen, it's their abilities on their instruments, um, the way that Freddie Mercury can use his voice, the way that the rest of those guys can can really sing. I think John Deacon was the only guy, the bass player. Who didn't sing. Uh, who didn't sing. Uh, who did, but he, but but he, he also he wrote some great songs. He wrote some amazing songs. I think he wrote my favorite Queen song of all time. Uh, yeah, I I Best learned, uh, I didn't know this, but I learned all my favorite Queen songs, or almost all of them, are written by him. guys are wrong but that's okay <laughs> uh but i'm, I'm also going to say that i'm starting to appreciate them a little bit more as, as i'm getting older and um i'm also going to say that this album um 
is probably my favorite album by them that I've heard. And, and I, I would have said that Night of the Opera is my favorite before this one, but I, I do see your point on this one, Tony. It, it's a little bit more toned down. The histrionics is, you know, there, it's, it, it seems like a more personal album to me. Well, and I, when and you find so, out the history, yeah, the history of it is some of these songs go back before Queen. Well, and, and saying that it's toned down compared to Night the Opera isn't saying a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, that album, when that album was recorded, and it's not the only album, there are several, evidently several times Queen ran, the, with overdubs, ran the tape so thin you could see through it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, you know, this was a, a learning experience for me. I did not know Queen had a singer before Paul Rogers. <laughs> really excited to learn that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's this, uh, this guy, he was, you know, almost as good as Paul Rogers. But what, yeah. what an odd, just real quick, I want to take a brief moment to talk about how odd that is, because I think Paul Rogers has one of the greatest rock and roll voices ever but it yeah. is it, it is the polar opposite of what freddie mercury is so it's a weird deal i mean todd rundgren singing for the cars that makes sense in a certain way to me yeah paul rogers singing for queen does not no but i went back and uh, i started looking at some of those videos with that guy um adam, adam yeah lambert. adam lambert adam lambert adam lambert he does a, he does a hell of a job yeah, but uh, look, I didn't think just uh, go to look on uh, YouTube for a karaoke uh, Korean. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, you're talking about Journey. I mean, it's it's. I, I feel the same way. I mean, or is he Philippines? I'm sorry, Queen Queen, queen without Freddie. I mean, I don't want to say Queen was or Freddie Mercury was Queen because that is really not fair. And I think this no, album, this I think album this album shows, shows that yeah. not only does it album show it, but we get to a certain song. I'm going to talk about something where it really shows it. But um, I, it, it's not Queen without him either, right? No, right. and I and I can't imagine why someone would say yes to that job if they already had a great job. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like it's not like. Paul Rogers was sitting on the sidelines all these years waiting for his chance. And here it came. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that <laughs> never made sense to me. And can it's you imagine, really funny that we're talking about that right now. <laughs> can you imagine that uh, the opposite happening? Freddie Mercury singing for free or for bad company. No. How weird that would be. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, no. That but the thing work. that makes that so, this one's so peculiar is we're not talking about uh, a good rock and roll singer we're talking about someone that sounds like they were doing opera and switched to rock and roll it, at least in my mind that's what it is yeah and, and, and his ability is just bizarre his compositions are very much based on harmonic structure and and he knows what his voice can do they actually, uh, a group of Czech and Austrian and Swedish researchers did some research on his voice because long believed to be a four octave voice. Um, really? And they couldn't confirm that. But what they did confirm was uh, that uh, everyone thinks of him as a tenor, but he was actually probably more likely a baritone and really? that his vocal cords move faster than most people. And and that also contributed. So, like it says in the research I did, it said a typical vibrato 
will fluctuate between 5.4 hertz and 6.9, and Freddie Mercury's was 7.4. <laughs> wow. Well, what's, so, what's it that's for almost the like average? a violin string at a high. Yeah. 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 What's it for the average uh, Texan? Would it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like two. <laughs> but so this is another guy similar to, to Nilsson who's got yeah. just a, a remarkable range. And, and going to what you said, Doug, that I find, I think it's, if not to knock what you said, but I think it's a bit of a simplification because if you listen to some of that, you listen to stuff off the first two albums, that's a rock and roll singer. I never saw my face in any window any day. Without a doubt, that guy he is. He tries to be, yeah. Well, I think he succeeds. I, I think he succeeds. I didn't mean to say that he can't sing rock and roll. I I just meant he can do so much more. That's true. Rock and roll. I I take back. I take back what I said. I agree with you. This guy, it's it's a a band full of very interesting, smart people who, you know, despite how. Freddie Mercury died, did not give in to the excesses of rock and roll and to the way that you hear about a lot of those bands doing. I mean, um, Brian well, May, the, the, the book I, I read about is uh, with um, written by one of the roadies. Um, sounds like they, they gave in to some of the excesses. Uh, yeah. There's a story about, uh, the backstage of the Hyde Park concert, and they had a separate, smaller stage where there were uh, female strippers uh, dancing while the in between the acts. So, I think there was, I think there was excess going. It was the seventies, after all. <laughs> yeah. I find the most interesting thing in that comment is that you had to uh, uh, identify the strippers as female. <laughs> well, Fre- Freddie was the only Freddie was the only one that was. Um, I well, was the gonna- manager. Well, the later manager, right? Um, so I, 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 since we're on Freddie, why don't we just briefly talk a little bit about his history? Because I think it's it's yeah. interesting. Freddie so, Mercury is not his name. No, it's Freddie Bolsera. I'm yeah. glad you said that. <clears throat> and uh, he was born in Zanzibar to uh, Parsi Indian parents. And he spent majority of his childhood in India seven he began piano lessons when he was eight he was sent to saint peter's school which is a british style boarding school for boys uh near bombay um and at 12 he started his first band called the hectics and they record or they covered uh cliff richard and little richard songs i guess they had a thing for people with last name richard i don't know um but in 64 his parents end up uh leaving zanzibar because of a revolutionary violence against ethnic arabs and indians and they move to middlesex england um, and so that's where he spends the, his formative years, I guess, or his later formative years. And he ends up, uh, going to college at Illsworth Polytechnic in West London and, uh, works for a degree in graphic art design. In fact, he used those skills to design the queen, uh, crest. He, this famous queen crest is, uh, designed by Freddie Mercury and it, in a very, in, 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 uh, Classic Spinal Tap fashion includes all those uh, representatives of the four band members Zodiac signs in it. So, oh, really? Yeah. I find interesting. Um, 
And uh, in 69, he joined a band in Liverpool called Ibex, and they were later renamed Wreckage, and they played like Hendrix-style heavy blues. So he was a singer for a band that played like Hendrix blues riffs. Uh, And there's this interesting, it sounds awful, but there's this interesting bootleg, flack for better word, that was released um, as part of some sort of retrospective uh, of Freddie Mercury stuff. And it's got him singing Communication Breakdown, Rain by the Beatles, Stone Free, the Hendrix song, and Jailhouse Rock and Crossroads. So, you know, they kind of were all over the place. He ends up leaving that band later in 69 and answering an ad in Melody Maker for a band seeking a vocalist called Sour Milk Sea. And by early 1970, that group had also broken up as well, which kind of brings us to the intersection of him and two of the other members of the band, Brian May and you know Roger Taylor, who were in a band called Smile. Doug, Doug and I talked a little bit about the movie Bohemian Rhapsody, and there's a scene in that where, where Freddie Mercury meets Brian May and Roger Taylor after Smile breaks up. And in the movie, it makes it what, sound what, like... Like 15 minutes after they break up. Yeah. And in the movie, it makes it sound like Freddie Mercury goes back there, introduces himself to the band. They make fun of his teeth. He starts to sing and they fall in love with him. The reality of it is he actually went to school with uh, the lead singer, Tim Staffel, who was also right. the bass play, player. And he was he, he knew all the guys in Smile for a long time. In fact, uh, when they when he graduated from college, he and Roger Taylor ran a little stand at an antiques mall um, in yeah. London. So, you know he knew these guys this wasn't like some someone sort of like a lightning bolt out of the blue and they just happened to luck upon this guy singing I, I mean i think it for the longest time he he probably knew he wanted to sing with those guys and was just looking yeah. for the opportunity to do it but smile was a was kind of a big thing for a while um you know brian may is is <laughs> is by all on counts a brilliant man <laughs> he really is um, he's studying mathematics and, and, and physics in college and roger taylor was in dental school when they when they yeah. formed this band it's funny he uh he answered an ad uh that brian may had put in looking for a ginger baker type drummer so mm-hmm. um and, and the other thing is roger taylor was not originally a drummer he was at a uh, he started off on guitar and he was trying to front bands on guitar but he just figured hey everybody needs a drummer what the hell figure i'll start playing drums well that's true um they uh they end up playing this pretty big benefit show for the national council for the unmarried mother and her child at Roy albert hall it's got it's got uh the bonzo dog band joe cocker ironically free tony as you know i listen to a lot of machine gun kelly and um (laughs) who doesn't that much about free well, Free was a band uh, that Paul Rogers, who was the lead singer of Bad Company. I don't know if Free actually morphed into Bad Company or not, but Paul Rogers uh, was the lead singer and their big hit was uh, All Right, All Right Now. Let's move. And which yeah, is a I fantastic people, fantastic song yeah, i think most people think they're listening to bad company when they hear that right but it wasn't um so i hope that gave you a little uh information 
uh, that, Mr. That Mach- Machine Gun Kelly. Um, <laughs> anyway, they uh, they end up Smile ends up getting uh, getting their music into the a tape into the hands of Mercury a Mercury Records A and R executive named John Anthony, who would also produce Queen's or co-produce Queen's first album with um, uh, Come On Jam. Roy Thomas Baker. Thank you, Roy Thomas Baker. I can't remember his name. Um, and uh, Anthony's boss is this guy named Lou Reisner, who saw the band perform in 69, signed Smile to a one single deal for the U.S. market. He said what he heard was he called them lead yes, because they had yes, <laughs> yes harmonies and big Zeppelin riffs is what he said. They got much better so, harmonies than yes. So they end up uh, recording three, actually recording three tracks, one called Earth one called Step On Me, and another one called Doing All Right, which was later actually re-recorded by Queen for their for their debut album. Um, and those were all recorded in Trident Studios in 69, which will come, Trident will come into the into play here in a little while. Um, it was never released in the U.S., uh, but they ended up going back in to record three more songs, April Lady, a song called Blog, and a song called Polar Bear. Um and again, those were never released. So anyway, Smile ends up, uh, you know, getting a little bit of fame. And Freddie, you know, ends up following them because uh, Staffel introduces them and he becomes a fan. Um, a little, It's funny, a little side note. When Brian May graduated, he got an offer to go work at, a, uh, at an observatory and do graduate work. And he decided he didn't want to do that because it would take him away from the band. That's when he graduated from his PhD. No, no, no. This is PhD. He got his PhD. Yeah. He got his PhD later in life. This is when he was offered graduate work and he decided not to do it because he didn't want to break up smile. But what's so ironic about that was then Staffel leaves to join another band called Humpy Bog and the band ends up breaking up because of that. So, um, Freddie ends up persuading Brian May and Roger Taylor to continue with him as a lead singer. He changes his name to Mercury. Uh, they tried a couple of different bass players. None of them were deemed good enough. And then in 71, they tried out John Deacon, who they thought was perfect. One of the things they say, they all three of them say about John Deacon was he was the polar opposite of the other three guys. He was very, he was <laughs> very, yeah, he's so humble. Yeah, my God, he is an amazing bass player, and he's I mean, also that's... just just very kind of just stoic, and you know, he's not yeah. the other guys in their own way are are, are flamboyant. Um, he's probably the control rod in the nuclear fusion. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so well, I mean, the, you see, excuse yeah, me, you excuse see. me, fission. <laughs> but real quick, I, I think it's important to talk since I mentioned it, it's important to talk about their initial recording contract because it's it's I I. I'm fascinated by these early rock and roll contracts and how bad they were to the musicians. Oh, yeah. So they end up, uh, they couldn't get interest really from anybody. Uh, there was a little bit of interest for charisma who was uh, their charisma was known for the home of a bunch of British prog bands, most notably Genesis, but also Vandergraaff generator. And they were, they were offered a deal, but the band felt like the, and this is probably true that, uh, that charisma was just not going to give them the attention they were going to give to Genesis at the time. So um, they ended up, uh, they didn't want to play second fiddle to Genesis. So they ended up, you know, skipping that they signed with this group called Trident audio productions, 
which was established by Norman and Barry Sheffield. And the idea behind that group was they were they were um, going to sign bands, give them access to Trident Studios, which is at the time I think, if not yeah, the Bowie best recorded. studio, yeah, it was probably maybe, the best. That was where Bowie recorded. And, yeah, and, I mean it was a, an amazing studio. But what they would do is they would then shop. They weren't going to release the album. They would shop it around to other labels, and this is actually the first time that an that an independent record production company had taken on the responsibility of a rock band and the deal would make mean they were responsible for everything, the producing, the managing, the song publishing, they controlled every aspect of queen outside of, you know, playing the instruments and, and writing the songs. Wow. And, and uh, as we will find out later, it was a horrible, horrible deal for the band. I think Brian May is on the record as saying it's the worst thing they could have ever done was signing that deal. Before we before we get into a little bit about just the, the the history of the band's recording before we get to this album, I wanted to, I want to briefly talk about Brian May's guitar sound. So yeah. anybody anybody who's listened to this podcast knows how I feel about the pedal steel. The pedal steel guitar is, in my mind, one of the greatest musical sounds known to man. <laughs> I, I kind of feel the same way about Brian May's guitar. When I hear his guitar, I feel almost exactly the same way as I, not quite, but almost exactly the same way as I do when I hear the pedal steel. I love his tone. I don't know what it is or what he does, but it is maybe the most recognizable guitar. I think tone. you're right. I, I think that maybe there's Mark Knopfler and there's Brian May. I think those are probably, I can't, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break the tie for you. Brian May's guitar is the most recognizable uh, guitar sound in the world, and that brings us to this week's new feature: work <laughs> for the band. And it's funny that we stumbled upon it, but this week's word is recognizable. <laughs> I think Queen is absolutely the most recognizable band in the entire world. You cannot hear that guitar, you cannot hear the lead singer, and you cannot hear especially the harmonies, the harmonies without right. going bing queen. No yeah. one ever goes, is that Led Zeppelin? Yeah. <laughs> is that Led Yes? Um, yeah, nobody ever says exactly. Nobody ever says like you can hear Todd Rundgren songs and, and not recognize them as Todd Rundgren songs. Well, you can hear and, Beatles songs and not recognize them as Beatles. And you can hear other people, A, and, and there are there's a band we're going to talk about hopefully in the next couple of months that I want to do. I'm just waiting to pull the trigger on. Uh <laughs> where their harmonies are Black Crow. Very, yeah, no. Uh <laughs> very, very queen-like. Um and and there's another band I like uh, whose guitar tone occasionally sounds like Brian May's. And when you hear that, you it's immediate. It's immediate who they're trying to sound, who they're emulating. It's not like oh, they just found this cool tone. It's like oh, they're 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 trying to introduce Brian May to the song, or yeah. they're trying to sound like Queen's vocals. What's the name of that guitar? The Red Special. The Red Special. Or the I Fire. Love, I absolutely love the story of the Red Special. He it's got made two. It with his dad right he did yeah. it's got two other names too the fireplace which do we know why it's called the fireplace it, because the body came from a hundred year old mantelpiece fireplace mantelpiece according to may there were wormholes in the neck of the guitar that he filled with matchsticks and uh and and he initially designed it to um feedback because he saw jeff beck playing live and what jeff beck we've talked about this before the sounds jeff beck could make on a guitar and he wanted 
he wanted um, a guitar to do that without having to move it in front of the amplifier like Jeff Beck was doing. But the the fretboard, each of the the 24 inlays is, um, it's oak, oak fingerboard, but it's uh, mother of pearl buttons. And he put the position dots in a weird place. So there's two dots at the seventh fret yeah. um, and the 19th fret and three at the 12th and the 24th, which is not where they normally no, are. No, it's not where they normally go. His leads are very, very cool. I'll, I'll say they're a little composed for me because i i you know i much more prefer like the mark knopfler or the lil george just like all right let's just tear your heart out but his and his leads are very interesting well there's and, not there's not a whole lot about this band uh, i'll acknowledge that isn't composed yeah um, oh they're they're very they're very uh, premeditated, which which I think to for me, one of the knocks about them when they perform some of this stuff, case in point, Bohemian Rhapsody live is they can't do it. So they have to pipe in. They have to pipe the vocals in, which feels a little, yeah, I don't know, a little unrock and rolly to me. I, I saw them. What was it? The uh, Was it Live Aid or something? A big concert. And he starts with Bohemian Rhapsody. And it's quite evident that as soon as he gets to the part that they can't do, yeah, he he switches songs. But I, I was really curious about how much of the backing vocals and all of that can they do without um, when they're not able to stack vocals on the well, tape. And you, you can, you can that, that they sound great when they do all that studio stuff. But they also sound great as a live band. They do. They do. And they and there are songs that uh, while the studio version might have a little bit more overdubbed harmonies that they do harmonize live and they sound great when they do it. The the three, the three of them can sing really great together. Yeah. Um, I was just going to go back to what you said, Jam. Yeah. The guitar, the, um, the Red Special was it was built when he was a teenager with his dad. So he's had that guitar forever. I think um, those dots were uh, buttons from his mom. Yeah, mother, mother of yeah. Paul buttons. And <laughs> yeah. uh, and the reason it's called the red special is the the code the red coating they put on it. They just put tons and tons of this coating on it that turned it that color. Yeah, and they've tried to redo it. He he's actually got um, a green special that he he tried to redo, and he he it never could sound the same. So he uses it as a um, as a backup, and it's tuned to a chord. So there's only like two songs that he plays with it live. Um, but, uh, there's, this, string. there's this really cool video that I stumbled upon of him playing with Les Paul in New York. I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys saw that, but Les Paul used to play at this club, I think fairly regularly, and he'd have guitarists come and, and sit in with him. And uh, it, Brian May actually flew to New York specifically for that. He, they'd asked him, he was going to fly over and they said, Hey, do you want to do this? He's like, no, no, no. He goes, what about play with playing with Les Paul? He's like, I'm on the next flight. And it's, <laughs> and it's a really cool video. And he pulls some song that I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, he pulls a song out, this old, old song that Les yeah. Paul is obviously impressed that he's going to play. So it's a real, it's kind of a cool moment watching the two of them uh, play together. And does Brian, his, Ma- his guitar have the same exact tone. Uh, I don't think he's playing the red special, but I could be wrong about that. Um, but the, it'd be the, nice if he would play a, a Les Paul. Yeah. yeah. But the thing, the thing that, uh, and, and this is something we'll talk about a little bit more as we get in the album, but the thing about 
him doing that is Brian May has got a pretty great voice too. Now he's not Freddie Mercury, but it's definitely not something that you go. Ugh. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a, a pleasant yeah. voice. And his song on this album, the song he sings lead on, is one of my favorite songs on this album. <laughs> me too. Yeah, um, me too. So their first album, oddly enough, called Queen, uh, comes out in July of '73, and it's a, a pretty much a heavy prod blues rock album. Yeah. But it it contains "Keep Yourself Alive," which is a great song. I love that song. Um, and it's got uh, a version of them doing that old that smile song we talked about doing all right. I mentioned that before. Yesterday, my life was in ruin. Now today, I know what I'm doing. Got a feeling. Um, and funny enough is that version of doing all right is one of very few songs that actually has Brian May playing piano on instead of Freddie Mercury. Mm -hmm. And then it's got a little brief instrumental version of seven seas of rye, which, uh, we'll talk about in a minute more when they're recording the album, they're doing it in Trident studios, as we talked about. And because that studio was so booked and they were nobodies, they would uh, they would have to go in when the studio was not being used. So they would get calls like uh, Bowie's Bowie's done with the studio. Come down and they'd go down at two o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. Sometimes they were walking up the stairs when the cleaning ladies were walking down. Um, and uh, yeah, that was the they recorded it in the summer when um, Bowie was producing Transformer, the Lou Reed album. They were in this, the, at recording this album at the same Which time. Which we will we will do at some point. Um, it's more than meets the eye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's funny about that though is Bowie evidently said some told an interviewer that Freddie Mercury had asked him to produce that first album, and nobody in the band remembers ever talking to Bowie about producing <laughs> the first Queen album. Um, I guess they had to do a song together. That would be good. <laughs> but uh Roy Thomas Baker, like we talked about, uh produced it and he he produced every queen album up to the one we're talking about tonight 74 they released their second album queen two and that one has the full version of seven seas of rye on it you guys know the story behind that like how that song became a hit I have no uh, idea. No, I, I listen to Machine Gun Kelly. So, well, it, this is this is kind of a cool thing because it actually shows there's a little symmetry to the story, and I'll get to why that is. So, uh, Bowie was supposed to uh, supposed to have a video or some tape performance of Rebel Rebel that they were going to do on top of the Pops, and it wasn't ready in time, so they canceled it. So, EMI's head of promotion suggests Queen go on. And they let them go on and they performed, they lip sync basically their version of Seven Seas of Rye off of Queen 2. Um, after they played the song, BBC One playlisted the song. EMI took advantage of this opportunity and rushed a seven inch single of it out immediately. And, uh, and it was in the stores just two days after that top of the props performance. It went through the roof. It ended up uh, peaking at number 10 on the UK charts. The funny thing about that performance is, as anybody who's watched those tops of the pops performance, they're, they're they're not they're not actually performing. They're performing to a track, and yeah. 
Roger, if, if you watch interviews with Roger Taylor and Brian May talk about that performance, Brian May said it was great. They were on top of the pops. While it wasn't that cool, it was the thing to do. Roger Taylor, on the other hand, said there was a strike going on. They ended up having to record it in the weather studio, and the drums they were using were fake. Like the cymbals weren't actually cymbals. So every time he hit it, it made this weird clunky clunk sound. Um, uh, but what's interesting, when I said there's symmetry to this, so four years later, Queen is scheduled to go on the Today Show, the Bill Grundy Today Show, in De- oh. on December 1st in 1976. And Freddie Mercury gets a toothache and decides that he can't stand it. He's got to go to the dentist. It's the first time in 15 years he's gone to the dentist. So Queen cancels their performance on the Today Show. Who do they get to replace them? EMI gets the Sex Pistols to come to that show and that's oh that fame that's that famous television perform or a show where uh where steve jones drops the f-bomb and uh and uh all hell breaks loose and everybody the, the sound or the filth and the fury you know that was what they called it at the time and it's it kind of sends the sex pulses on their way so queen gets a massive hit because bowie cancels the top of the pops performance and then four years later the sex pistols become I don't know, a national, whatever you want to call it, because Queen has to cancel their 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 performance. You know, Tony, sometimes you can't pay someone back, but you can pay it forward. (laughs) (laughs) So um, they uh, they end up touring with Mott the Hoople for supporting Queen, too. And it was such a big success that in the UK that Mata Hoople asked them to tour the U- the U.S. with them as well. So it's fir- really their first time in the U.S. In the middle of the tour, Brian May comes down with uh, or gets diagnosed with um, hepatitis, yeah. and they have to cancel. They have to cancel the rest of the tour. As a result, their next album, Sheer Heart Attack, was essentially written. What well, kind of started the writing process without Brian May involved in it? Sheer Heart Attack, as I mentioned earlier maybe my favorite queen album uh it was recorded in just two weeks and it gives them their first real international success what's on sheer heart attack is uh in my opinion the greatest thing those guys ever put to tape which is killer queen she's a killer I think Killer Queen may be one of my top 10 favorite songs of all time. Well, that, that, uh, that, sounds, that sounds like a Broadway tune to me. almost. Uh, oh, I think it sounds, I think it sounds, you guys might laugh at this, but I think it sounds like a power pop song. Hmm. Oh, yeah, um, I'd see the elements in there. Now mm-hmm. the, uh, the uh, subject matter of uh, Killer Queen, we have, uh, we have been to that before, I believe. Roxanne. <laughs> <laughs> or uh Maggie May. Yep. Exactly. Um but uh so it's got that that's got Killer Queen on it. Um it's got a uh, Stone Cold Crazy which is also a great song. Uh, and Brighton Rock, which is also a really good song. It's funny the guitar solo on Brighton Rock is is considered one of by a lot of people one of the greatest rock guitars rock guitar solos ever. It's a uh, Guitar World actually ranked at number forty one on their list of the hundred greatest guitar solos of all time. Hey, 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 hey. 
yeah so it's it's a fantastic album but man killer queen uh it so it hits number two in the uk singles chart it's their first u.s hit reaching number 12 on the billboard hot 100 uh you know i think uh, getting getting to your point about it sounding like broadway and me saying it sounds like power pop i think if you combine those two things together you get glam rock and that's probably the place to put it but it is it is uh yeah the exactly. thing I, that's a really good way to put that. I've never uh, if, yeah, if you um Broadway that's a if very you good took away Freddie Mercury's remarkable voice and had just a regular guy singing that. I think the power pop part would really pop, and well, uh, you wouldn't you know, the 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 Broadway would probably fade away a the, little the, bit. The thing about that song that's always gotten to me, and and you guys have talked before about music having some sparseness and how there's emptiness in a song that there is not a single empty space in that song. That song is full from beginning to end, just full of, I don't know what little bells, little things. I mean, there's not any emptiness in that song and I'm fascinated by that. Well, that's Um, kind of a Queenarian uh, characteristic. I think it is, but that song in particular does it perfectly. It's well, like and per- that's, that's an interesting thing is that uh, usually I wouldn't care for that, but I think Queen does it elegantly in, in a way that they don't, nothing gets killed when they come out with that fat sound. No, you're right. And yeah. what's, what's, uh, what's interesting about this album was it, it goes to number, the song killer queen and the album both go to number one in Japan. So they go to tour Japan uh, at, when this album's released and they sh- the plane lands and there's 3000 crazy Japanese fans at the airport waiting for them. There's like his Beatlemania. They'd never seen anything. They thought like it was cheap trick. <laughs> they did play the Budokan that on that tour, <laughs> which is kind of funny, but uh, yeah, they were treated like just uh, like rock stars in Japan. They like couldn't royalty? believe it. Like, like royalty, queens? like queen, like Queens. Yeah. Um, and, and then they, and then they come back to the UK and, uh, with all the success they've been having and they're dirt poor because of their deal with contract. this, this contract, they, uh, yeah, they, in fact, uh, I think Brian may says that at one point they were, they were so, so broke that they were told that uh, Taylor couldn't had to be careful with his drumsticks because they couldn't afford to buy new drumsticks. That's how, that's how poor they were. Did they um, call up bad finger? <laughs> they should have. It should have, but um, they uh, they ev- they eventually end up negotiating their way out of this contract, and they realize they're not making any money off of this. And and uh, supposedly, what happened was they um, they owed they were in the in the red to the the production company. They owed them all this money, and so every bit of money they earned just went straight to paying off whatever this massive debt was. But they end up negotiating their way out of that. Uh, out of that contract um and they end up signing an agreement with elton john's manager this guy named john reed who eventually told them when they were recording their next album he said you need to go into the studio and make the best record you can and so the next album was night at the opera the interesting thing about the renegotiation or the negotiation out of the contract was they agreed to pay trident a hundred thousand dollars and then get this they guaranteed them one percent of all the royalty of the royalties of their next six albums that's how they got out of the contract. Yeah, so that's how bad that contract was to agree to that to get out of it. Um, Jeez, yeah. But uh, 
Night at the Opera at the time, and I don't know if it still holds this uh, distinction, was the most expensive album ever recorded. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies. It got surpassed by Tusk by Fleetwood Mac, but it's I think it's second. Well, it had a, it had a production budget of forty thousand pounds. Which, yeah. which in today's money is two hundred and fifty thousand U.S. dollars. <laughs> Going back to their production, their former contract, the opening track on Night at the Opera is a is a song called "Death on Two Legs," which is was written a, as a hate letter to Sheffield. My blood like a leech. You break the law and you breach. Screw my brain till it hurts. And it's it's so vitriolic that Brian May actually said he felt bad singing the lyrics because they're so vicious. And yeah. uh, I mean, it's if you listen to it, it's it's pretty horrifying. <laughs> I mean, there's no there's no love loss there. And uh, Sheffield actually sued them uh, for defamation, and uh, they had to settle the case out of court. Just speaking real quick at night at the opera, it's got. I'm guessing your favorite song, Jam, which is the John Deacon song, You're My Best Friend. That is your favorite yep. Queen song, right? It is my favorite um, Queen song. Mine too. And, uh, and it, not just because Jam said that. It's got my one of my favorite songs they ever did on it called the prophet song which is just a prog masterpiece it's so great and and brian may said that that song that song's pre predates the album by a little bit because he said it was written in a in a hepatitis fueled fever dream <laughs> so um and then of course it's got bohemian rhapsody on it um which the I, I, what else can be said about that I, just a couple of interesting notes it took him three weeks to record the song it was recorded in six different studios <laughs> and it's so the no- one that has the first time that you could actually see through the tapes well the vocals and real quick i want to talk about the vocals because um roger taylor is the one that sings that really high falsetto in all of their harmonies and he's the guy that's got the rod stewart voice yeah you know which is a weird thing that he's the one hitting those really really high notes yeah and then of course everybody knows the story about how they wanted to release it as single they got pressure not to do it they did it anyway but here's something that i don't think is in the movie that i thought was pretty funny they invited this guy. Um, they invited this guy named Kenny Everett in, who worked at Capital Radio down the street. He was a disc jockey to listen to it, and uh, he loved it. And he asked them if they could, uh, if if he could borrow it. And this, they hadn't even released it yet. And he's like, they're like, eh, I don't know. They ended up giving him a reel to reel copy, but they told him he could not play it. Well, of course, 
he plays it. In yeah, fact, of course. He plays it 14 times over that weekend. And the next Monday, people are banging on the doors of the record station or record stores going, where is this song? Where is this song? Yeah. And the and the label hadn't even released it yet. So right. and I know that song is is known for all the operatic stuff in it. But my favorite bits on that song are when Freddie is surprised. I've not talked about this before. Gets that growliness to his yeah. voice. So you, know, you think, think you, you can, can stop that that part when he goes, so you think you can stop me and spit in my eye? That part, his voice is and remarkable. He, yeah, and it shows he's a good rock and roll singer. All that opera sets up Freddie and uh, May for the uh, for the rock and roll part. When that guitar comes in. Oh, yeah. No, you're it's, right. It's the same thing as what happens with Freddie's voice. It's that contrast because. There you are with all that sweet little la 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 la, and then this stuff comes in and yeah. it just it just tears everything up. But yeah, and this this song is also responsible for what pe- most people think was the first real music video um, yeah. that they recorded for forty five hundred dollars um, to sh- to play on top of the pops instead of performing because they couldn't perform that live. They'd look ridiculous, right? The success of that song and that album, uh, as a result, they're all four of their albums are in the top 20 in the UK charts at this, at this moment. That's one of those albums, a lot like 2112 by rush where the band was at, at a crossroads. And if this didn't work, they were done. The band queen would likely not have been queen anymore. Um, And they, they did what rush did. They essentially went in and left everything on the, on the table, on the floor, whatever the term is and created this album. That's, you know, stood the test of time and uh, is is a major part of their legacy, and and uh, you know. And this is this is one of the last albums they did where it, um, they did the Boston thing, where they said no synthesizers. No oh yeah, that's that's on. Yeah, I've got I've got Day at the Races right here, and it says no synthesizers on it, which is kind of no synthesizer. Yeah, and so and so the stuff that was being done, there's no strings on it either. Which there's a couple of times I'm going those strings no that, that's brian may doing his yeah brian may that's the one thing you could say about i mean the, when i think about his guitar sound it's it's like choral is the word mm-hmm. i think of mm-hmm. um and uh and he can yeah he can make it do things that you think that's got to be something else but no it's the guitar <laughs> yeah all right so uh i think we've talked enough about the history of queen obviously a collection of very interesting guys um let's dive into this album so yeah this is the first album that queen has produced themselves um what is this their number it's their fifth album fifth album yeah first song on side one tie your mother down by brian may and it was written before uh he was a member of queen this is actually written while he was in um studying for his phd in astrophysics yeah this is an older song uh he says that he was on top of a mountain playing the riffs when the sun came up and the words of the song just came to his head he hated the title he thought the title was horrible but when he heard freddie singing it he said it obviously meant something to him, but it didn't mean to me. So we kept it. Um, yeah. 
but Freddie uh, Mercury obviously loved the title. <laughs> well, he played, they play, he played it at the Hyde park concert. And he says in, there's a, a, a bit of a quote in his, in this bio I read about of him where he talks about performing that song live for the, for the first time and, and kind of what it felt like. And just, just, energized i mean it's a hard rock song this is this is queen kind of doing what they used to do uh on this song this is not this is not you know these choral yeah. vocals or anything like that this is a i mean um you know it does start off with that uh guitar. Well, I think one of, yeah and i think that's one of the most incredible things about this album is how he can stack those guitars his ability to do that what he calls guitar orchestra is what it's um listed as in the credits and it, it, it is amazing i love when freddie mercury's clean and his vocals are soaring but there's just something about when he's in the grime like he is in this song that yeah. i that just sounds i don't know if it's more appealing to me in some ways we didn't mention that it starts with a gong well, it starts with a gong and then it and I kept trying to see if that guitar riff before the big before the cool riff comes in, if that is the same guitar riff from from White Man. And I don't know if it is or not. It I sounds think it's very telling. similar. I, I think it's very telling similar. That it starts with the gong. Why? It deserves one. I, I think the guitars on this are really fun and interesting. And um, I I would love to be the guy playing these guitars on this song. I also love it when this song ends. <laughs> you're not you're not a fan. <laughs> it, it's that James already brought up the lyrics. They're just if there's there's nothing nothing interesting about this song and and uh, there's nothing interesting about the it's just a rock it's just a, it's just a rock and roll song. Yeah, and uh, I don't, song, you yeah. don't need Queen for this. I, uh, you can, well, get, I, I, you can okay. get the counting or no, what are the crows people that we don't like black crows, but they could come out here and sh- scream. Uh, you're going to, you're, you're going to make me eat my words that I've said plenty of times. Like, I think I said it the last time we were talking about where we were talking about. And I said, what, well, you don't need him to do this. You don't need, Oh, Tom Petty. I was like, you don't need Tom Petty to do this. You're, yeah. I guess you're, I see your point, but I love Queen so much. I don't. I, I don't mind them doing this. So I guess I'm a bit of a hypocrite. Well, I'm, I'm not but saying. It, it does, I don't it think does. probably nobody could do it better than they're doing. I mean, yeah. That a lot of other guys could sing this song. He'll sing it better, but he'll well, sing everything it, better than they do. Well, <laughs> it's the thing. They do something else. Queen executes almost all of their songs flawlessly. I, I mean, I really can't think of a time where I went, Oh God, I wish I had not done that in that song. And this is, this, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not you're talking about a, execution. Yeah. I get, I get what you're saying. I get, I get what you're saying. This is not, um, I guess, I guess I give them a pass. I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll admit to a little hypocrisy here on this song. I don't, I don't, I, I if, if it well, was I'm another just, band, I would probably agree with you. Well, and if I was in eighth grade with my windows down in my, I guess I didn't have a car, but I'd still have my fist in the air going, time is down, yeah. Anyway, I just think they're capable of so much more. If I'd been their manager, I would say, come okay. on, guys. <laughs> Speaking of being capable of so much more, the second song, side one, You Take My Breath Away. 
Is, this is a prime example of why this album is better than Night at the Opera. Because I will agree with you. this song on Night at the Opera would have been drenched in all kinds of histrionic yep. overdub yep. vocals and, and it would have ruined the song. This song is is better for it not having that stuff going on. Brian, uh, when Brian May's guitar kicks in, that choral, yep. that that rich round choral sound, it's just mm-hmm. it's so great. Um, if there is a if there is one negative thing I would say about this song, and it's a nitpicky thing, they they don't need it. Ends. It should have ended with him saying, you "Take my breath away," or when it says, um, "I'm sorry." When it, it says the right after it says. And I love you, and the and the piano kicks off. It should have ended there. It doesn't need that fade in of that. Yeah, take my breath away. Take my breath away. Take. I I think that that pulls you out of the moment of what that song would have been had it just ended abruptly at that point. I'm going to disagree because the thing that 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 part did for me was okay. That song's over. Wow. And then it comes back in, going, "You take my breath away. You take my breath away." Yeah, it's a little too goofy for me. All right, the next song, Long Away, my second favorite song on the album. I love this song. I love this song. It you know what this song sounds like? Tom Petty? No, well, maybe it sounds like a bad finger song to me. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This song is so great. Uh, Brian May's vocals are great on it. It's it's a it's a little reminiscent. It's a better version of Thirty Nine off of Night at the Opera. I think Is this yeah. the one where he plays the Rickenbacker. Well, he tried to play a Rickenbacker, but he couldn't do it, so he had to get a specially made. Um, Cut the neck was too uh, thin. Yeah, the neck was too thin. So uh, he, he so he got a specially made. I can't remember the the the. Who it sounds it like for. such a Tony song. It, it is it's fantastic uh Beautiful. the bridge Absolutely. on it is wonderful the bass yeah. guitar in this song is great i mean this it's it's uh yeah it, is it my it may be my favorite song on the album and it's so weird considering it should be at one point it was my favorite song on the album but that's only because i hadn't heard it well brian may's songs are always the ones he sings are always underrated gems he's his songs are they're just like they're little respites from what freddie's doing and yeah and they're and they're a better respite than what roger taylor does i think typically well Um, roger taylor's songs are always a little I'm, i'm always interested in any of the songs that these guys do this was a great song i love that 12 string yeah yeah um and it's, uh, it's, uh, his vocals are great on it. Yeah, yeah, they're fantastic. Yeah, I I learned. You know, I don't know. I don't do very much with Queen at all. I've had, um, I've had admiration for them without much interest. And one thing, this, the discipline of listening to albums when you aren't inclined to listen to them, which is what we do frequently. 
made me realize that all my favorite Queen songs, almost every one of my favorite Queen songs is not a hit. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's, or not anthemic to them. It's like, well, you're, even you're not what you're uh, for. Yeah. I, I think best friend uh, is, is the only hit that I really, really like, but there are a lot of these other songs that I discovered I liked because like I said, I've been required to listen uh, <laughs> beyond my inclination. Mm-hmm. So as a bass player, uh-huh. I'm going to really say this is an amazing song, The Millionaire's Waltz. Bring out the charge of the love brigade There's spring in the air once again Bring to the sound of the song parade There is music and love everywhere Give a little love, love, love to me I want it to yeah, this is the song that I mean. When you say that, it's funny because the bass is what in the left channel when it yep. starts off. The piano and, and the, the piano's right. in the right, and then Freddie comes right bang in the middle uh, yeah. when he sings. Um, and it starts. Is, it's like two minutes of that. Yeah, this is their. This is their. This is the epic song, I guess, on this album, right? Millionaire's Waltz. It is. It, it's it's the uh, closest to. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, it's. I mean, I hate to keep comparing them. It's hard not to compare these albums because they have the almost the identical album cover. They were, you know, recorded back to back. I think a lot of the songs were written around the same time, um, it, so it's kind of easy to do that. Although it's a little, it's a little, um, it's a little, it's easy to do it, and then it's also a little easy to do it if you know what I mean. But I think yeah. it's fair. This is. I think you're right. This is essentially the Bohemian Rhapsody off this album. Yeah, yeah. His his voice. This is not rock and roll, by the way. No, it's not. It, it's it's and it it's. I guess it's most of that. it's in waltz time, and then it it goes. Well, into it's a, 12, it, eight. It, it does a bunch I mean, of weird things. It's like it's it's like a four or five different songs in one song. Well, and it, yeah, like Bohemian Rhapsody. Like a, yeah. yeah, it sounds like a Berlin nineteen <laughs> twenties uh, before the. And, and he it's does very some, very playful, and he does yeah. some interesting things with his vocals that you don't hear yeah. in other songs. And then he does this sort of uh, German accent thing that I think is really works. But the part where he's like the my the the my fine friend part of the yeah. song, yeah, yeah he yeah. sounds like he almost sounds like a cabaret singer in that point. Who is this written about? Uh, their manager, mm-hmm. John Reed. I I think it's. Very clever, very interesting, and it's fun to listen to uh, May play all this. Oh, he's epic on this. On this oh, track. Yeah. It does. It's it's so all the music is so inappropriate for an electric guitar, <laughs> and yeah. he makes it fit. It's it's yeah. very interesting. So this uh, I brought I brought Queen up or Freddie Mercury in particular when we talked about Harry Nielsen. So I'm going to bring up Harry Nielsen now. There's a lot of, I mean, I'm not going to say they sound alike, but there's a lot of similarities in their approach to what is considered quote unquote rock and roll music, right. right? It's, it's, it's not traditional and, and they bring all sorts of disparate elements into it and they make them work. Well, I, I think this definitely works. I think it's very, very interesting. And all the things I said about uh, tie your mother up, are down. <laughs> Tie your money um, down. <laughs> Tie your money sideways. About that song, this this song avenges me. 
Nobody yeah. else in the world could have pulled this off. I'm, nope. I'm, I, I have, I, well, I can, I can see maybe meatloaf making a good attempt, but this is, um, yeah, this is impossible. Uh, well, and, even and, the way it ends with this is that, that radical piano part that comes. But out. isn't it, it, it? It's weird because a lot of songs like this one in particular, a lot of Queen songs kind of make you rethink things. You think it's it's this weird, almost uncomfortable moment where you're thinking, why do I like this? This isn't, as you said, this isn't rock and roll, but there's something really appealing about this that I can sink my teeth into and, and listen well, I, to. I like it a lot, but I like a lot of music that's not rock and roll. So, All right, moving on to the last song on this side, You and I. It's a John Deacon song. And it's a very good song. It is. It's, it's a good. fantastic song. Great bass, great drumming. Uh, it's a good way to end the side, I think. I think so, and too. It's, 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 I tell you, it's disgusting. This is my favorite song on the album. Uh-huh. And uh, I love it very much. And it was side B for Tie Your Mother Down. <laughs> That's funny. Um, that tells you everything you need to know about what's wrong with this world. I think it's funny that, you know, considering what we talked about with Brian May and his guitar, this song has, in what my opinion is kind of his most straightforward solo on the album. There's not anything fancy schmancy about yeah. it. Um, a couple of ascending yeah. uh, scales, isn't it? Until the very end, he, he, he does a straightforward solo until the very end where he harmonizes. And, and he, he's a very good harmonizer on his guitar. It's, it's uh, I agree. This is one of the most underappreciated Queen songs. It's such a happy song, too. I mean, it just makes yeah. you want to tap your feet at the, you know, while it's going on. And, and it's got all the guys that are been on the sidelines. He never has really written a depressing song, right? I mean, right. <laughs> I, I'm I'm convinced it's it's funny you say this is a B side. I did not know that, but I'm convinced if this had been re- released as an A side, it would have been a hit. It's I'm surprised it, sounds it wasn't. Like a, Absolutely, sounds like a hit to me. Yeah. Well, the thing is, all these guys have written hits for Queen. I mean, Roger Taylor wrote "Radio Gaga," which is one of my favorite um, Queen songs. Really? Yeah. I love that song. I think it's a fantastic song. Interesting. I do like, I don't know what to call that noise that um, May does before he gets to his solo, but it sounds like a horse coming from a distance. It's it's some sort of scraping the strings with the hand muting it. And uh, it's it's fantastic. It's one of his... uh, Really cool noises he makes. Well, you know, one of the reasons why he makes really good guitar noises and unique guitar noises is he plays with a coin. Oh, that's right. He does. What kind of coin is it? It's like a... It's like a 10 pence or something. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. British coins that we ain't got. (laughs) And they've actually uh, discontinued that. So he has has to go into... uh, antique shops and stuff to find the picks uh, that he's I, I well i'm i'm gonna use a uh a jm ism 
and say yeah. that this song is worth the price of admission. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say it makes you boo. I was like, what? It's beautiful. It is beautiful. That's All a good right. Song. So let's flip it over. And we've got <laughs> definitely a hit. Uh, somebody <laughs> to love. Somebody, somebody, somebody. I'm really surprised that you guys don't like this better than my best friend. That's a, I'm not knocking that other song, but this is a remarkable piece of music. <laughs> I think this is my second favorite song by them. Um, it is amazing. So we talked about um, Bohemian Rhapsody. To me, this is the less polished version of Bohemian Rhapsody. And I think it's so much more fun. Yeah. Well, it's it's Freddie doing Aretha is what it is. I think you're right. I think. Well, no, he's that's what he says. He says that. That's why. But it is. I mean, you without knowing that his vocals on this are significant. Your perfect word, significantly more soulful than anything else he's ever recorded. I there is a version. Here's here's something that's that surprised me. There's a version of this song online that isolates his vocals from it. It's just his vocals and none of the music. And wow. it, while it's amazing to listen to, the it doesn't sound as good without the music. I would have thought listening to that, you'd be like blown away, and you are. But without the band backing him on this song, it's not as good, which was surprising to me. Because it's not just, you hear it and you think, oh, it's his vocals. But it's the whole package. This song is everything. He's got a, this is a, a showcase on his uh, range. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's and incredible. And this say, has... it goes from uh, A-flat 2 to, to a Fasado A-flat 5. Wow. So, <laughs> of, I... of course, if you do a Fasado, you jump up a bunch. But this this is uh, also controlled. Uh, the thing that this song does that Queen does occasionally that I really like is when they mi- intermix. So there's there's a, a, um, a verse. It's not the chorus, it's a verse. And they'll intermix Freddie's vocals with the background harmony vocals. So mm-hmm. they're singing, they like finish what he's singing or he finishes what yeah, they're singing. Yeah. And it, it's really cool when they do that. Well, and, uh, and then sometimes they're not doing like standard. Works, uh, yeah. They're not doing standard background vocals. They're, no. they, they're, they're repeating what he says yeah. and they're saying, he they use the yeah. word he yeah <laughs> i work hard he works hard he works hard <laughs> it's that's great i oh i you're, you're 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 wondering why uh this isn't one of our favorites um it's it's different than uh my favorites which are deacon songs and that's uh this this is too artsy too elaborate to uh. be to be personal and um, well, I, I, I get that. I think with opera, I mean, you can't really, there's going to be parts of opera that are going to hit you, but a, a whole arp, opera is not going to hit you. I think, well, this is, this is sort of like a barbershop quartet where you're amazed yeah. by what's happening, but I think, I'm not I think, moved by what's happening. See, I'm, I am moved by it. And I think it's probably because of listening no, this, to this much. This is one of my favorite 
Yeah. And I, and I think it's it, listening to all the prog I listen to, like the complexity of this song and all the, the as busy as it is, I, I, I get that and I like it. And I'm able to, I, I'm able to, and I'm not saying this is a knock on you, Doug, but it feels to me like I'm able to distill the emotion of his vocals on this. Cause it, before yeah. I even heard the Aretha thing, I was like, these vocals are so soulful and just unlike anything else the guy's ever done before. This also has one of my favorite so guitar solo brian may guitar solo oh yeah oh yes unbelievable guitar solo yeah it's just it's great it's great well it's it's a it's a masterpiece of uh execution and production there's no question about it at all there's there's a reason every every group in the world copies it bring it into the uh the present it was the last song that taylor hawkins sang Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot he used to sing this. You know what's funny about this the song is it was released the same it was released as a single the same month that Anarchy in the UK was released. <laughs> Talk about you got this band that represented everything the Sex Pistols hated. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just kind of funny. Um it was a big hit. It it hit number 13 in the US and number 2 in the UK. The fact that it was on Glee speaks volumes. <laughs> Well, look, uh, Queen lends itself to that kind of stuff. It sure does. does. But that, but that, but that does not take away from how great these songs are, just because it lends itself to that. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that you ended up on Glee doesn't mean you're a bad song. I All think right, Fleetwood Mac ended up on Glee. Yeah. I don't know. There's a couple of shows I didn't get to see. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm surprised you could say it with a straight face, but you could but you couldn't. <laughs> All right. All I know is on. that uh, that's the one that made uh what's this, the journey song popular again? And then the, they uh Don't Stop Believing. Did, uh, yeah, and then the Sopranos did it. Let's move on to the worst song on the album, White Man. <laughs> This song uh, keeps uh, this song. This is a song that keeps uh, "Tie Your Mother Down" from being my least favorite song. Uh, I I don't hate this song. I hate this song. I don't hate it. It's it's the most unsophisticated song that they I've ever heard by them. Well, I, I'll tell you what's funny. Somebody reviewing this album called it, um, and I think it's funny to call it unintentionally, but it says it's unintentionally condescending. <laughs> It is. And then, exactly. and then, and then yeah. the person, the person said, "Nobody really wants to hear Freddie Mercury." No, but anytime ple- you write a song the- like, anytime you write a song like this, you are going to be condescending. Well, uh, as Especially we talked if about, you're from Europe. As we talked about earlier, um, there's there's no shortage of British bands singing about the plight of the Native American Indian. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite metal bands, Maiden, has a song called "Run to the Hills." It's the same yeah. touches on the same subject matter, you know. Um, well, it's a fine song, but yeah, I don't give a damn. Well, I just have one thing for the two. Y'all may not understand what happened uh, to the Native Americans, and you may. I'll tell you what. Just go ahead and hate your neighbor. Go ahead and cheat a friend. Do it in the name of heaven. You can justify it in the end. That's all I have to say to you, too. 
I, I get I guess the reason I don't hate this song is because it's uh you know outside of subject matter it's kind of borderline metally and so I I can I get along with well, it. It's not even it's it's bad. It's so stupid. I'm, even, I'm so embarrassed yeah. for him for doing this song. Yeah. Uh I don't know. It, it's it gives I think I think he and Dylan ought to tour together and he can sing this I, and Dylan can do Masters of War. You know, I, I, there's a way uh, you could not have a song in existence. This would be, you know what? I, I'm glad you brought up masters of war. Cause I feel the same way about this song as I do about masters of war. It doesn't bother me. Like it does you guys. Eh, I could give eh, it. Doesn't yes. Bother me. yes. It's what bad to screw people over. Yes. And yep. it's bad to be, uh, I, I don't care. It's, this is what cracks me up is when someone takes a stand on something like this that everybody knows was a bad thing. Right. And, and no, they're, I, like, I, they're like, I'm so, I'm so righteous and so brave to do this. It's like coming out against that video where someone was throwing little puppies into a river and drowning them. I mean, you're, you're not, you're not breaking ground. You're not, you're not making us reconsider something. Right. No, I, I, I get that. I get that. I, I guess I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just obtuse. I don't overthink the song. I'm going to move on because I'm the host. Um, good old fashioned lover boy. What's not to love? What's not to love about this song? Such a good song. This is, uh, yeah, this is uh, that same sort of, you know, uh, with again, I'm going to bring up Harry Nielsen, McCartney. Yeah, they do exactly. this kind of, this kind of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, 1920s. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just, just this cute little cabaret sort of, yeah. And it's got a guest vocal on it. Yeah, Mike Stone. Mike Stone, who was the guy who was responsible for stacking all the vocals. Um, yep. He's on the hey, the hey Boy, that part of it is him. Yeah. Which I think Roger Taylor sings live when they did it. He'd sing that part. So, yeah, yeah, but it's um, just so beautiful and so delicate. I, 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 I love songs uh, like that so much. It's another not rock and roll song. Yeah. And I get into not rock and roll. Another song. one of these that I assume it wasn't a hit because I never heard of it. That oh, it was a I hit. Really, I really, it was a hit. Yeah, it was actually. I think it might have even been released as a single. This is another example of a song. Other bands would kill themselves trying to do it. Yeah, yep. an ultimate song, um, written by the drummer Roger Taylor. Drows. It's in six eight. Six eight yeah. time, that's right. Yep. And um, drummers love six eight time. By so the way. this I, I so I, I know we were talking a little bit about the comparison between this and night at the opera. This song sounds a little too much. Like I'm in love with my car for, to me. Yeah, it does to me as well. And I think this one is better. Well, it's the same writer, right? 
Yeah, I mean it's it is a better it is a better song, but again, it's weird to think this guy is the person responsible for that high falsetto because, again, he's, he's got that kind of gruffy Rod Stewart voice. voice. Yeah, you know, I don't know. This is my least probably my least favorite song on the album. Um, and we have a slide guitar. Yeah, yeah. we do. It's good. It's good. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know that I. I mean, I don't hate I it. hear that very often from him. He plays the guitar parts on it too, other than the Roger Taylor does. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's uh, huh. Well, it says uh, May played the slide guitar. Yeah, May played the slide guitar, but he played the um, all the other guitar parts, and there's a lot of guitar parts on it. All right, moving on to the last song. Teo Torante, Toriate, Teo Toriate. Let's cling together. Let, okay. it, let us cling together. Japanese so, or Yes, it's Japanese. Ja- Japan. It's Japanese. It's Japanese. This was a love letter to their the fans when they toured. You know, this was the song written for them. That's why there's also got Japanese lyrics in it. It's a beautiful song. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely. It's wonderful. It was actually released as a single in Japan and reached number 49 on the charts. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just a really nice. This is uh this is to me kind of broadcasting some of the stuff they would do later on, some of their more uh kind of straightforward ballady stuff that they would do in later albums. That's what this reminds me of. Um it's way that another I- one that I hadn't heard of that is uh very good. I I, I just I, I latched on to this one too. One of the things I noticed was um, Freddie says that uh, this is a Brian May song, by the way. Freddie says that uh, Freddie Mercury says that he plays a harmonium on it as well. That's yeah, a good. It's, it's a, this sounds like something they would end the show with. Is is that the case? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they end the show with it, but um, obviously, and and you know how we always say it's a great way to end the album. That's what Freddie. That's what Freddie Mercury says. Actually, he says a perfect way to end Day at the Races was that song. It was absolutely the best song to, to end the album with um and it is it, it sounds like you're saying goodbye to people you care about it just seems perfect for ending a concert yeah well and i think uh you know it, it goes to show you for a band that we've talked a little bit about how it's it's sometimes difficult to get into their emotional center the 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 trip to japan really impacted them in a way that especially brian so. may yeah well tony thank you man i i can't think of any reason i would have gotten uh, intimate with this record other than uh, someone picking it for this well and uh, you're I, welcome i did enjoy it um one, did it as well one final thing i want to talk about in just comparing this album to the last one so the the, the obvious thing is they're both named after uh, uh marx brothers movies yeah and uh and what's what's interesting about that is um when the band released I'm pretty sure it's when they released Night at the Opera. Um, it might have been this album. One of these albums, Groucho Marx actually reached out to them, sent them a telegram saying that, uh, 
commenting them on the uh, on their choice of album titles. And at some point, the the band is in California and they end up going to meet him. My John Deacon wasn't with him, but Brian, Brian May, uh, Roger Taylor and Freddie Mercury all go to Los Angeles to see to um, meet uh, Groucho Marx. And they present him with a gold album. That's got two pictures of Day of the Races and the covers of Day of the Races and, and Night at the Opera on them, and uh, and some one of the I, I don't know if it was Groucher or somebody asked them to sing a song, and Brian May didn't bring a guitar with him, and uh, Groucher was like, "That's okay, we'll find one for you." So they end up getting an acoustic and they perform uh, Brian May's song Thirty Nine uh, with him singing it and Freddie Mercury doing all the. Freddie Mercury and Roger Taylor doing the harmonies. That's kind of a cool thing. You know, you think about that. There's there's sitting in a room with Groucho Marx singing. How old was Groucho by then? Oh, geez. He lived a long time. Yeah, he was old. How about that? You know, yeah, but you know what? They got a lot of songs that would have sounded like something he might have listened to during his I know. Day. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure why they decided to name their next album "News of the Weird World." I think. Uh, I think "Duck Soup" would have been a good title. But yeah, you know. Tony, tell us about the Live Aid performance. Well, so we we've talked about Live Aid before. Um, in fact, when I, we talked about Tom Petty, I think I posted the. I did. I posted his Live Aid performance on on the website. Um, but by all accounts, Queen's forty minute set during live aid is ranked as one of the greatest live performances ever captured on film. And it's hard to dispute that if you watch it. Um, and it's all because of Freddie Mercury yep. and his command yep. of the stage. And he they, is so energetic on that stage. Yeah. And they play, they, they play six songs. They play Bohemian, part of Bohemian Rhapsody, Radio Gaga, Hammer to Fall, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions. And uh, and what's really interesting about that is that performance was a, a matter of months after they had gotten a bunch of flat for playing Sun City in South Africa. Um, they were one of the few bands that kind of went, don't tell us what to do and went down there and played anyway. Um, and, I wonder what uh, little Steven had to say about that. A little Steven didn't like it. Yeah, the uh, that performance of it's and I'll post it on the website. That performance of Live Aid is just it's fun. It's so as you said, Dougie Soderjig is so much fun to watch, you know. Um, and and the the main reason I watched that is because I was curious about how much of what they do on the record could they do on the stage. And there is a lot they can't do on the stage, but they're so good you don't notice it because right. what they are doing is phenomenal. And yeah. he's such a showman. The, the other interesting thing about the band is uh, they continue to have some popularity in the UK, their, their albums charting, but around when the works, which is interesting because the works had another one bites the dust on it, which was a monster hit, if not a disco hit, but a monster hit. Uh, they, they start dropping off in popularity in the States. I mean, their albums would just, you know, it's like it would be number one in the UK and number 60 in the, in the U S which is a weird thing. Right. So um, I, I don't, I don't know why that is, but I will say that the last album they recorded with Freddie Mercury at live, which is called innuendo 
is this isn't my recommendation, but it's definitely worth checking out. It's a, it's, it's a pretty strong album. I mean, it's not the queen of your, but it's a, it's a, it's a good sort of swan song for him to have bowed out on. the record while we're on the podcast i said the works and i meant the game for another one by Sadust. the works was a later album so i apologize for misspeaking everybody oh we've come to the part of the podcast where we ask for uh our ratings and so i'm going to start with uh doug cooper doug what do you give this album i'm i'm very happy that tony picked this record uh i would not as i said earlier i would not have listened to it uh, had it not been one of our choices, uh, I have a great deal of respect for this band and what they can do. And it seems to me that this album and probably all their albums required a great deal of hard work to pull off. And uh, this is not one of those things where it's where they tell you they did it in seven days and it. And you believe them. This just sounds like hard work and a lot of skill. Uh, as a critic, I give it a five. I think there's a couple of songs on here that could have uh, gone into the waste bin. Uh, on a personal level, I also give it a. Did I say five? You said five. As a critic, I give this a, a 4.5. And that is the same I give it on a personal level. Uh, I did enjoy some of the songs quite a bit. And this is a song, this is an album I'm going to listen to uh, again many times. And appreciate Tony for picking it out. Yeah. You're welcome, Doug. All right. So um, I, I would give it a four or five as a, on a personal rating. Um, I will listen to it again. This is probably my favorite thing that, that Queen has ever done. And I used to think that Night at the Opera was my everything they've ever done i think the music is sophisticated i think everybody sings unbelievably well um the guitar playing the drums the bass playing uh, as a bass player the, the the bass playing is unbelievable as a critic how they i'm gonna give it a four or five like it's, it's a very fine album um this is a band. So in the past, you guys have both talked about bands that you're very attached to jam. You talked about Tom Petty in that way. Doug has talked about little Steven and, and Springsteen in that way. Queen is a band like that for me. Queen is the first band I can remember kind of being my own band. I mean, they, they were big, but you know, my mom introduced me to the Beatles and a bunch of other stuff. And so that was something I shared with her. Queen was the band that I brought to the table. And I remember there were times growing up where I couldn't find my Queen albums and my mom had come into my room and taken them, which was kind of, you know, a reversal thing. But um, I, li I listened to this band from a very young age, fell in love with them from a very young age. Um, have I followed them probably longer than a lot of people did. I mean, I was... Uh, I was devastated when Freddie Mercury died. I had a poster on my wall in college for a long time. That was uh, just that, that famous, you know, pose that he does. And it just had his name and his birth date, and his death, death date on it. 
Um, I mean, you can ask my wife. I was I was heartbroken when he died. I, I just this band means that much to me. Um, so that's a very long way of saying that uh, this, while not my favorite Queen album, is my second favorite Queen album, and it's it's pretty close. Uh, I would give this for my personal review a four nine. And it, the only reason I would not give it a five is there's there's just a couple of things that just keep it from that being an absolutely perfect album. Not much. Um, critics wise, uh, you know, this thing got a lot of flack in the in the press for being Night at the Opera Part Two. I think Roy Thomas Baker even called it a, a bad sequel. I don't think that's fair at all. Um, I think that everything Doug said about this representing hard work and showcasing this band's talent is spot on. Um, I, I think that being said, uh, this, I think a four or five is a fair score critics wise for this album. Um, I'm, I'm well aware that there are some songs on here that I give a pass to that if I was a little bit more critical, if it was my first time listening to it, or even if I wasn't that familiar to it, I probably wouldn't, I would maybe have knocked my personal rating down a bit. So I think a four or five seems right. If you hadn't have dated them in high school, had a crush on them. Right. Exactly. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that does it for tonight. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you have any comments, we were, we would love to hear your comments. Please go to our web page. It's at tappingvinyl.com, tappingvinyl.com. We invite you to check out some of the other episodes and please uh, write us and let you know, let us know what you think. And we've had some good recommendations lately for some other albums that we might want to try out. We're also at, uh, on, we're on Facebook. We have a Facebook group uh, called Vinyl Tap on Facebook. Don't mistake us with the other guy that, uh, has a bunch of records Canada. that he wants to talk about. Do up from Canada. Oh, that's the other other guy. Oh, that's that's on the podcast. Um, so we're on uh, we're on Facebook at uh, Final Tap. We have a group there. We'd love for you to join our group and keep up with us and post some things yourself. And we're also on uh, the Twitter uh, at Tapping Vinyl. Yep. And uh, as, as long as Elon's going to let us stay on there. And, and Instagram. Tony, Tony, tell us about Instagram, because uh, I don't know too much about that. Well, we uh, we probably post on that more than we do on Twitter, but we try to do both. But, yeah, we've got an Instagram handle as well. We'd love for you to check it out and follow us. It would, you know, tell you what's coming up. We talk, we post when the album comes out, um, all that jazz. And also, clean. someday we're going to get on TikTok after we figure that out. And uh, we don't know how to do stuff that moves like TikTok. Um, we're uh, we're old. Yeah. But Tony's got a daughter. She ought to be able to figure that out. That's true. So thank you all very much. We got a uh, an album coming up next week. I'm not going to tell you who picked it, but you ought to be able to figure it out really easily. Next week, we have the album Avalon coming out by the band Roxy Music. We'll hope you join us for that. For everybody here at This Is Vinyl Tap, 
Thank you for listening and have a great evening, even though you may be listening to this in the morning. <laughs>